This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ. And we, on this beautiful Palm Sunday, a week before we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus on Easter Sunday, we get to turn to the Holy Gospel of St. Luke this afternoon. We're turning not as you might expect, to the account of Jesus' triumphal entry in Luke chapter 19, but to something preceding that in Luke chapter 18 on Jesus' journey to Jerusalem. We're turning to the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke chapter 18, verses 9 to 14. And you can turn in your Bibles, and it will be on the screen behind me as well. Let's listen to the living word of God together. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, Have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Our Lord Jesus told many shocking and disturbing parables. But of all the stories he told, I don't think any really is as shocking and disturbing as this parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And Luke doesn't tell us, but I imagine that when Jesus finished telling this story, there was a stunned silence among the disciples and the crowd. Because as far as everyone else was concerned, the rabbi had made a terrible mistake. Because the wrong man in the story goes home with God's approval. Every single Jew at the time of Jesus, including his own disciples traveling with him to Jerusalem, they would have assumed without question That if God approved of anyone, it was the Pharisee. The Pharisees were a reform movement in Judaism that arose around the second century before Christ. And by the time of Jesus, there were around 6,000 of them in Palestine. Bad things had happened to the nation. And Israel was groaning under Roman occupation and Roman oppression. And the Pharisees were convinced this was because of the sin of the people. They had forgotten God. They had neglected prayer 
and worship and obedience. And the Pharisees committed themselves to being the spearhead of national revival. They were God's commandos. And by their devotion to God and His law, they were going to lead the people back to their lost glory under God. So they could be God's people in God's land under God's blessing. Now the corrupt temple leaders, the high priests and that whole gang, they weren't so fond of the Pharisees, but to the ordinary working class Jewish farmers and fishermen, the Pharisees were national heroes. It took incredible time and effort to obey all of these commands of God. It was hard for ordinary people to do, but when you looked at the small group of Pharisees in your town or your village, you felt hope in your heart that there was yet a future for the people of God if there were men like this praying and seeking revival. If there were these men on fire for God standing in the gap for the nation. And I must emphasize, the Pharisee in Jesus' parable is no hypocrite. He's no whitewashed tomb stealing from widows. This guy is able to say with integrity, and notice Jesus does not challenge his honesty, this Pharisee can say before God, he's not like other people, he's not a robber, he's not an evildoer, he's not an adulterer. This is not a guy who's secretly looking at porn or cheating people on business deals. This guy keeps the law of God. Not only that, this Pharisee is a man who has gone far and beyond the law of God. You know, the Old Testament laws required fasting one day a year. On the Day of Atonement, the people of God were commanded to abstain from food. But this man is fasting twice a week probably on Mondays and Thursdays, as the Pharisees did. Instead of one day a year, this man is fasting 104 times a year. Not many people can say, I'm doing 100 times more than God requires. This man could say that. The law only required you to tithe of your grain, your oil, and your wine. This guy is not just tithing you know, his herbs and the tiny little things. He is giving a tenth of all that he owns, just to be extra sure that he's not only keeping the law of God, he's going well beyond that. This man is seeking to be a righteous person. And to be a righteous man or woman in Jewish thinking meant that you were living and you were acting in right relationship to God, to society, to the entire creation. And by every standard the Jews possessed, this is a righteous man. So, there's our Pharisee. And any Jewish dad would have been honored, would have been delighted to marry his daughter off to such a paragon of virtue. And he would have been horrified to learn that his daughter was sneaking out at night to date a tax collector instead. The worst person imaginable. Everyone in Jewish society hated the tax collectors, and for good reason. The Romans had a system of tax farming. So they would sell off the contract to collect tax in a certain region, 
and you would bid for it, and the highest bidder, say you offered 800,000 denarii, you would get the contract for that district. You had to give that money to Rome, that whatever you'd bid for, but anything above and beyond, you got to keep for yourself. And so, even if you were an honest tax collector, everyone would have despised you because your tax money as a Jew was not going to free health care and a social safety net and a retirement plan. It was going to fund the Roman army that was occupying your country. It was heading to Rome to fund the hated pagan empire. And every Jew would have tasted in his mouth the bitter irony that your own money, your own produce, your own goods were going to pay the salaries of the pagan legions occupying the holy land, the promised land, God's country. And any Jew who would take that job of collecting taxes from God's people for the occupiers was selling out his people, a traitor, a collaborator. And, you know, just like a corrupt police officer can always find some or find or invent some little crime to pull you over and require an immediate cash payment, every taxman, every toll collector had ways of forcing people to cough up a little more. And as a Jew, and most of, them, most of them lived barely above the poverty line, you could only stand by in helpless rage as these people helped themselves to your hard-earned income and took the food right out of your children's mouths. No one sympathized with tax collectors. You know, people, we love to talk about Jesus hanging out with the marginalized and the oppressed. The tax collectors were not the oppressed. They were the ones doing the oppressing. They were not objects of pity. They were creating objects of pity. And perhaps a decent Jew could muster up some sympathy for a prostitute or some other kind of sinner, but you would have none for that smug tax collector rooting through your luggage. You know those psalms where the psalmist cries out for God to bring down vengeance on the wicked, to punch him in the teeth and to break his arms? That's what the righteous and the poor, the people who trusted God, that is what they were praying in these times for God to do to people exactly like this tax collector. In fact, the crowds pressing around Jesus as he goes to Jerusalem have high hopes that this is God's liberating Messiah who's going to be the instrument of vengeance on the tax collectors and the Roman troops behind them. In Jewish tradition, tax collectors were so hated that they were classed along with murderers and robbers as the three kinds of people you were allowed to lie to and it would not count as a sin. No one would accept alms or donations from a tax collector in his own office because you knew it was dirty money. And if a tax collector entered your front door, your entire house would be considered unclean. So everyone in the crowd listening to Jesus' story would have ground their teeth 
as Jesus introduced this tax collector, perhaps fresh from his toll booth, having the nerve to trot up the narrow streets up to the temple in Jerusalem and expect mercy from God. So when Jesus ends his little story by announcing that the person who walks home vindicated, justified, approved by God is the tax collector, it feels like a bucket of cold water right to the face. The Pharisee, this person who has done so much for God and so much for the nation, who sacrificed so much, is rejected. While this scumbag little tax collector that every Jew would have loved to drown in a bog somewhere, this guy is said to be upright before God. And as the crowd stands there, staring at each other with their mouths hanging open, Jesus announces God's shocking reversal, that everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and everyone who humbles themselves will be exalted. You know, the key to the whole parable is in verse 9. Not every parable, most of them do not have an introduction explaining the reason Jesus tells them. But here in verse 9, Jesus tells us that Jesus told this parable to those who trusted in themselves, those who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else. Most of the people in the crowd following Jesus were not Pharisees, but they shared that basic attitude and that basic assumption. Those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and who looked down on other people with contempt. Those two things go together, don't they? If you're basing your acceptance with God on your accomplishments, you'll always need at least one eye on the people around you. And if anyone's doing better, they're a threat, and they need to be pulled down and thrust to the side so you can climb up the ladder past them. And if anyone's doing worse, well, they're a consolation and someone you can point to in prayer to establish yourself before God. Even before the Pharisee opens his mouth in prayer, we feel his contempt for others. Verse 11 emphasizes that he stands by himself. He's careful to separate himself from ordinary sinners to maintain social distancing, to take a prominent position at the front. He's proud of his purity that he has worked so hard to achieve and maintain, and he's careful not to contaminate himself with people who are not nearly as zealous for the glory of God. And I suspect he enjoyed being alone. It gave him pleasure to stand in a prominent position all by himself at the front, a shining example of what a true man of God looks like. And then, almost the first thing out of his mouth is comparison with others. He's grateful. He's so grateful that he's not like the rest of mankind. He's extortioners, the unjust, the adulterers. Honestly, this guy is just as disgusted with them as God is. And 
he adds as he glances disdainfully over his shoulder, thank you that I'm not like this tax collector over here. I mean, his prayer had, had started so well, hadn't it? God, I thank you. A very good way to begin your prayer. But it's all about establishing himself over and against other people. And he quickly goes on to list his own accomplishments. And though his prayer ostensibly begins with thanksgiving, with giving glory to God, he concludes by emphasizing all that he has sacrificed for God. All those meals that I refuse to eat. All that money that I gave up. Michael Green comments that the Pharisee's prayer is so laden with self-congratulation, it barely gets off the ground. God is deep in this Pharisee's debt. And you can tell the Pharisee is imagining a voice from heaven exclaiming, no, no, thank you. What an amazing man you are. The fact that this Pharisee thanked God is significant and it's troubling because here is a man who has a theology of grace. He has a vocabulary of grace, but he does not really feel the need for grace. You notice in his entire prayer, he never asks God for anything because he doesn't feel like he needs anything. He's produced it all himself. He is completely self-sufficient without any need for some outside input from God. In fact, he's gone far beyond the law's requirement. He has a plentiful reserve of righteousness and justice. He's sitting pretty. And so this man trusts in himself that he's righteous and he treats others with contempt. But in the end, this Pharisee, supremely convinced that God loves him and is grateful for him, nevertheless, he goes home condemned. Having exalted himself, he will be humbled by God. I think God rejects this man because for all his diligent keeping of the law of God, at heart, this is an idolater. His supreme love is for one person himself. God may be the first word in his prayer, but he's quickly forgotten as this Pharisee is lost in the contemplation of his own goodness. He has gone up to Yahweh's temple to worship an idol, his own righteousness. And Jesus' judgment is that this Pharisee and everyone like him, all who exalt themselves, stand condemned. And they will all one day appear before God where all their imagined righteousness, their justice, their noble deeds will be exposed for the self-serving fraud that they are. 
And those who refuse to humble themselves in this life, who cannot be honest before God, will be sent into everlasting shame and contempt under God's judgment. What about us this afternoon, listening to these words of Jesus? Are we sitting here in our comfortable chairs, very sure that we're upright before God, accepted by him for what we've done, and feeling mild contempt for the people who don't have it together the way we do? The easiest place for a Pharisee to hide is in the church. In fact, that's where Pharisees receive admiration for their devotion to God, as they fast and they give far beyond what us ordinary Christians are able to do, and they're the ones who get asked to lead women's Bible studies or speak at retreats or serve as an elder, and often they're very successful because they're so driven. But as Jesus warned the Pharisees in Luke 16, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. You know, God loves you, and he wants you to experience the joy of sin forgiven. So let's bring our self-righteousness out into the light where we can destroy it together and have freedom before God. You know, self-righteousness is one of those sins that is very easy to detect in other people. We're primed to detect it in other people, and we're utterly deceived about its presence in ourselves. Let's ask ourselves a few diagnostic questions under the light of the Holy Spirit. Do I constantly compare myself to other people? Threatened by those who seem to be doing more for God, feeling contempt for those who do less. Do I get threatened? Do I get defensive when people criticize me? and point out some flaw in my life? Do I feel resentful when God blesses less deserving people? And if you answer yes to those questions, it's a sign that you're trusting in your own righteousness, and we all do to some degree, trying to base your relationship with God off of your goodness. What that goodness might be is different for different people. We all have our own thing. Some depend on ministry success, a leadership position, theological knowledge, spiritual disciplines, financial giving. None of those things can pay for your sins on the day of judgment. And nothing could be more horrifying to imagine than standing before the burning holiness of God with nothing to cover you but the little scraps of your good deeds. The good news is that Jesus came for Pharisees. That's why he took the time to tell this parable because he has compassion on the self-righteous. And he wants to shake us out of our deluded self-destructed self-worship into the freedom of the sons and daughters of God. God's grace isn't just for tax collectors like Matthew and Zacchaeus. Pharisees like Nicodemus and Saul of Tarsus will be in the kingdom too because the Holy Spirit 
led them through the same narrow and low door that all of us must enter like children to go into the kingdom of God. So here's this Pharisee exalting himself. Beside him, far behind him really, is a tax collector humbling himself. Both these men, you notice, are standing apart from the crowd. One far in front, one far to the side. The tax collector also knows that he's not like other men, not because he's far better, because he knows himself to be far worse. He stands far off, very likely by the eastern gate, which was reserved for those who are ritually unclean. He comes just into the temple grounds, but he's too timid to advance beyond the entrance. And this tax collector is so filled with shame that he's unable even to lift his eyes to heaven. And as he prays, he beats his breast, something that only women did at funerals. And his prayer is short. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. It's even stronger in the original because he describes himself not as a sinner, but as the sinner. His sin is not just something he does occasionally. He knows it's who he is. And he's far harsher to himself even than the Pharisee is on him. And if he's overheard the Pharisee's sneering references to the tax collector, he doesn't defend himself. He's filled with too much shame to compare himself with other people or try to offset his sins by bringing his virtues before God. The tax collector is so desperate, he has no choice except to beg for mercy. And human beings only ask for mercy when they've run out of all other arguments. And when he asks for mercy, he's saying to God, there's no excuse for my sin. There's no way I can make up for my sin. There's nothing good in me to appeal as a reason that God might accept me. My only hope is your mercy. It never even occurred to the Pharisee to ask for mercy. It's not something he feels like he needs in his vocabulary, but the tax collector is a scumbag and he knows it. There's no way he could trust in himself that God considered him an upright person. The truth was too horrible. And so, because he can't appeal to his own character, he appeals to God's character. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And after telling this story, Jesus declares to the crowd, I tell you, this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. I tell you. And Jesus takes on himself the authority to announce God's final verdict in advance. And the verdict is that this evil man goes home justified, vindicated, 
in a right relationship with God, with society, with creation. And this very justice that the Pharisee had toiled and sweated and fasted and sacrificed for all his life, it's simply conferred on the tax collector as a gift. He's given the right to stand tall before God with his head held high as if no guilty deed had ever soiled his conscience. And notice, this happens before the tax collector makes any amends for his misdeeds. He goes down to his house justified. And certainly we can imagine a truly repentant tax collector like Zacchaeus would have made restitution to those he defrauded. That happens in the very next chapter. But Jesus deliberately omits that from this parable because he wants us to be absolutely clear that God's approval is something the tax collector had in no way earned. Why was the tax collector justified and not the Pharisee? I think our temptation is to hunt in this parable for some way the tax collector was better than the Pharisee. Maybe he was better at repenting or better at humbling himself that he was more sincere in crying out to God. And then we've just turned the tax collector into an even more complex person than the Pharisee, a man who can boast in his own humility, a man who can contemptuously pray, God, I thank you that I'm not like that self-righteous Pharisee. But if you would ask the tax collector, in the end, why do you think you were justified and not the Pharisee? He would have stared at you and said, isn't it obvious? It was the mercy of God that was the only difference. If the crowd was stunned, it's totally understandable. How can God declare an evil man like this tax collector to be righteous? The parable doesn't answer that question directly, but it contains some strong hints. These two men are praying not in their private homes, not in the synagogue. They're at the temple in Jerusalem. And people generally prayed at the temple twice a day at 9 o'clock in the morning and 3 o'clock in the afternoon as they gathered for the daily sacrifices. And almost certainly, the Pharisee and the tax collector were among this crowd. In his book, Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes, Kenneth Bailey describes what would have happened. Each service began outside the sanctuary at the great high altar with a sacrifice for the sins of Israel of a lamb whose blood was sprinkled on the altar following a precise ritual. In the middle of the prayers, there would have been the sound of silver trumpets, the clanging of cymbals, and the reading of a psalm. The officiating priest would then enter the outer part of the sanctuary where he would would offer incense and trim the lamps. At that point, when the officiating priest disappeared into the building, those worshipers in attendance could offer their private prayers to God. The Pharisee's prayer makes no reference to these sacrifices. Sacrifice for sin is not something I need. 
But there's something significant in the prayer of the tax collector, although it's obscured by our translation. When he cries out to God, be merciful to me, it's not the common word for mercy like the blind beggar uses at Jericho later in this chapter when he cries out, son of David, have mercy on me. It's not that word. The verb in the tax collector's prayer translated, be merciful to me, could also and more literally be translated, make atonement for me. The only other time this form of this verb occurs in the New Testament is Hebrews chapter 2, speaking of the high priest making atonement for the sins of the people. In other words, what the tax collector is literally praying as he stands in the temple courtyard with his eyes cast down, beating his breast, is this, God, may the sacrifice be effective on my behalf. I'm a sinner. I am the sinner. And I confess I deserve your judgment. But please, God, may the sacrifice our priest offers today cover my sin. Today is Palm Sunday, the day when Jesus finally arrives in Jerusalem and the gates of the city of God swing open so that Jesus, the righteous king, may enter. At last, one man with clean hands and a pure heart ascends the mountain of the Lord. Out of the great crowd of sinful and lost humanity, one man at last steps forward who can legitimately stand apart from sinners. He is not like other men. But this king is not there to ascend to be alone at the top of the mountain of God. He wants the whole people of God to come up with him. The true king is God's true priest. He's arriving in Jerusalem to make atonement. He does not stand apart from sinners. He stands with sinners, allowing himself, deliberately allowing himself to be contaminated with our sin, with our evil, with our impurity. He takes it all on himself, bearing the burden of our sin as the perfect atoning priest, the perfect atoning sacrifice. And Jesus came to do that so that you and I would not have to stand far off, trembling on the threshold, beating our breast, too ashamed to lift up our eyes. Jesus came as our high priest so that we could draw near with boldness, not on the basis of our righteous deeds, but on his spotless 
purity. So that we could stand upright before God, rejoicing in our saving King. Let's bow our heads and pray and ask God to make these things real in our hearts. Loving Heavenly Father, we're so grateful that we can call you Father through the atoning sacrifice of your Son, Jesus Christ. Forgive us for our pompous self-regard, for the ways we smugly compare ourselves to other people and strut before you. We're so foolish and we're so deluded, O Lord. And when you give us a glimpse of our true selves, we are horrified at the evil in our hearts. But we're coming before you through your Son, Jesus Christ. We're looking to his cross, to the finished sacrifice, to the empty tomb, to our living, living, risen Savior. Not so we can tremble before you in fear and guilt and shame, but so that we can stand before you, singing with joy, waving our own, our own palm leaves, welcoming the king to his city, the true king and the true priest. And so, Lord, fill us with the joy of your Holy Spirit, the joy that Jesus came to bring, the joy of his kingdom. And may our lives, our lips, our hearts, Sing with thanksgiving at your mercy, at your atonement through Christ. In his name we pray, amen. This podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. Learn more about us online at ticf-georgia.org. Thanks for listening.